And there came a day, a day unlike... Wait, no, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks and... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 112 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. And we're in for a strangely romantic uh, recording session today as we stare into each other's eyes unblinkingly. <laughs> yeah, we've got a little a little audio setup. No, you can't turn different. away coyly, Brian. Yeah, okay, I won't do no, that. No being demure. Uh, sorry, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta yeah. stay right in It's gonna eyes, be weird. <laughs> it's gonna give us good reason to oh, come in quickly, boy. huh? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Yeah. So we are uh, just the two of us this week. Yeah, I, I think Jen. Uh, I think she talked about too many flashing colored lights last week and triggered a migraine. <laughs> I'm sure that was what did it. Uh, so we have on the back half of the episode this week, Mark Russell. Yes. We have on the front half of this episode this week, way too many books. We had a lot of books this week. It was a very good week. You know what though? They were. All good. That, that's why I'm we, saying it's Okay, so this is just a shout out to all of the comic book writers that are out there that listen to our show. Can you start writing some crappy stuff so I can get rid of some books, please? Because like, yeah. everything coming out right now is so good. Okay, not everything, but everything I'm reading is good. How's that? Yeah, and probably more things than we're actually reading. Yes, that is definitely true. Yeah. I know we're missing stuff. All right, so we're just going to get into it. Okay, let's go. Uh, oh. The reason it is a strangely romantic recording Oh, right, session. yeah. yeah we, we already derailed ourselves. Yeah. And that deserves, I think, some context. <laughs> we are recording with a weird setup, which involves one bilinear mic that we are both directly across of and cannot turn our heads away from. Yes. So... So we have to look straight at the mic and we are directly across from each other, which is making this very odd. <laughs> yes, it's, it's strange. Uh, anyway... Yes. Moving, moving into moving it, getting on. into the Let's books. Go. If the audio's weird, sorry, we'll be back to normal next week. Eternity Girl number four. So this is a fittingly weird issue of this book. Uh, other than sort of a prologue, epilogue scene, we get kind of like the the backup stories that introduced Eternity Girl. A series a, of, yeah. of different versions of eternity girl in different con- different comic forms and different times in comics history. Yeah, it's like di- it's almost like different realities kind yeah. of of of, re- of her reincarnations or existences or yeah. And it plays with the idea of iteration and reiteration and like reality as as like uh, a DJ gig almost, yes. you know, like blending in and out of one song from one to the next and matching the key and right. You don't want to cut, you want to fade and you want to blend and you want, yeah. And so we kind of see that across these realities. It pretty much tells a single story. It does. And, uh, uh, it fits into everything we've seen so far. It's almost like the missing chapter between those original backups and what's happening now. Yeah, and uh, the one of the things that was really cool about this is each different 
kind of iteration that the, he's done in a very different art style, and a yes. lot of them are aping other or and presenting the feel of other yeah. things. Like I had to ask Alex, like, is Sonny Lou doing all of this? Because yeah. damn, this is. I mean, you jump from Wick Div to I don't know if Wick Div goes straight into Peanuts. But I think it does. Hang on, I'm gonna. Look those right are now. both styles. It does. This, okay, it, it does. does. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what was your favorite? Mine was mine was the peanuts. It it might have been the peanuts just because it was so ridiculously recognizable. Yeah, the Wick did one. Jamie McKelvey. I was like, I was like, God, this looks like Jamie McKelvey art. Oh, but... And who's the colorist on this? Uh, Chris Chucky. Is oh that gosh, Chuckery? I'm gonna have to uh, give me a second to look. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Chris Chucky. Yeah. Uh, I think the some like some of this is I think on him like the Wick Div. Yes, I, I would agree. It clicked to me as Wick Div because of its coloring. First. You're right. You're right. And the and the like the laser line yeah. etching kind of thing, yeah, yeah. But uh, but super super like kudos, guys, you pulled it off. Yeah, it's like I love this kind of issue. That's sort of a weird bottle thing that breaks format, kind of as close to a midpoint in a six issue series as you can get. Yes, uh, to sort of set up the the last couple chapters. And absolutely wonderful, wonderful. The cover so represents the inside like yeah. a story but it's so unique and different yeah yes. I mean, that's this whole book this whole book is, it is you know you're absolutely right it's like that you're right all right how about while we are on convoluted continuities uh-huh. hawkman number one number- or as he is as his name is correctly <laughs> pronounced Bird daddy bird daddy number one <laughs> all right um wow uh Hey, DC, with one fell, shall we say, swoop? With one fell swoop, you cleaned up a whole lot of problem with Hawkman continuity. <laughs> and, you know, maybe tied him into Marvel continuity some. Well, you know, like, isn't everything being, isn't all Marvel yeah. and DC continuity being Did you being catch tied those? There are a couple of versions of him in yes. there that are, there's one that's very much like Phoenix Force, Avengers versus X-Men era. Uh, Phoenix, and there's one that is basically a palette swap of Black Bolt's costume. Yes, absolutely. Um, the other thing, just because I, I was going through from the, kind of the beginning of this, yeah, I was going through kind of from the beginning of this issue, and damn that Stephen Shea cover. Like, come on. Yeah. Like, anytime he ever wants to do a cover for anything, just let him, because... Oh, yeah. Golly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's he is the variant cover artist for the first at least arc of this. So, yeah, I am super excited about that. I think they've released his first three covers already. Yeah, um, I'll be honest. This is one of those I picked up hoping it was not going to be good because I don't want to add another book to my yeah me to too. my line. I was I was disappointed in that it was really good, <laughs> and it had Madame Zuna doing it. Like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's always fun when she shows up. I, I loved the whole, is something supposed to be happening? Or, <laughs> and like, everything goes, everything goes insane. So, so I'm, the big reveal here. Yeah, should we call spoilers? It, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, it's the setup for and, the and book. It, and it, it is, but it's kind of further in, and I don't, I don't think they really forecasted this no, a lot. No, they didn't. So, yeah, spoilers. Uh, Carter Hall is not just reincarnated across... Time. Correct. He's reincarnated across space. Yes. So we find out that's how there's a Thanagarian version of him, and that's how 
Uh, he could die on Ran, which... Was that the life and death of Hawkman? Yes. Yep. Death and life? The death and life. I think it was death, death, and, death life. and life. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, there is so the a whole Kryptonian. Yeah, so the whole Carter Hall archaeologist and Carter Hall Thanagarian police officer, like, they were both the same person, part of yeah. his reincarnation cycle. And I like this because it sort yeah. of takes that Jeff Johns answer... Mm-hmm. And then just turns it up all the way, right? And yeah, like, the, but it, I think I kind of interrupt you there. Yeah, there's a there was like a Kryptonian version yeah. and a and a Ran version of like one that actually was from Ran and lived on Ran. Yeah. yeah. So all of these different uh, versions of him across yeah. space. But it's a retcon without negating what came before. Which exactly, I think is the best way to have. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, like everything that happened is valid, but. And then there's also this. <laughs> yes. Plastic Man number one of six. Gail Simone. Gail Simone is nailing it lately, huh? Yeah, she, uh, this is, this is really, really good. I liked how it started out somewhere where I thought it was different than what it was. Yeah. I thought it was, I don't, I mean, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read it because it was, it, for me, it was kind of a surprise. I thought it was going to be. Uh, well, I just said it. Something that it turned out not to be. Um, I don't know how to say that without uh, okay. without giving away what I don't want to give away. What did you expect it to be? I expected it to be his origin story when I started okay. reading it. Which is not to say that you don't get some of that in this. Correct. you d- And you do, but not in the way that you... I mean, it's very clearly, at the beginning, you think it's one thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it it's like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. I get it. Um, but, it, like... We all know the snarky characters, they have been doing a fantastic job with, and he's got, he's definitely got it. Yeah. And he is so not a hero, not a superhero. No. That, and he knows it, and he's fine with it. But he's not like, he's, and I want to, he's not like not a superhero, like Deadpool says he's not a superhero. He has an attitude that is. I'm a guy who had this happen to him. I'm not all good. I'm not all bad. I'm just a guy. And I do not trust the people who call themselves heroes any more than I trust the villains. Right. Like It's a little bit that, that Dwayne McDuffie Green Arrow vibe. Yes. But a little more, a little less noble version of that. Like he's the true neutral now, that. one thing I did want to point out, though, Jen, if you haven't read this yet, be prepared. There is more Wang in this than there is in Deathbed. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I don't think you can get through this book without at least once Wanging Chung. Nope, probably not. And a lot of Wang. <laughs> would you say too much Wang or an appropriate amount of Wang? Oh, no. For Plastic Man, it was just the right amount of Wang. Okay. <laughs> I did love the spiral agent that showed up, though. Yeah, that was that was that was a great uh, conversation and scene. Yes, that whole that whole exchange was fantastic. I might say plastic, fantastic. Yeah, my <laughs> six pack. I can make it a twelve pack if you want. <laughs> yes, whatever you want, I can shape into that. Right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Titan special number one. Oh, okay. Um, that problem you have of not being able to cut things. Yeah, and I do this to myself. I said, you know. This is a good place with, with the last issue, 22 or whatever it was. This is a good place to hop off and go to trade and 
then I say the thing I say, well, I'll check out the special. <laughs> and then the special is so damn good. It was so good. So... I like, I didn't, I've said this before, I didn't dislike the Titans run. Right. The Titans run had this, the Rebirth Titans run had this vibe to it that was just a little more, almost like TV teen drama angst. It, it, that I, I wanted it to have. I think it did have a problem in that it really, we talked, and I think we'd mentioned it, but it really kind of, almost didn't have a direction that it needed to it, go in. It was like, a, it was, it was these friends hanging out, which was great for the first four or five issues, but I, then it really didn't have this. I don't know that I'd even say that I can understand that. Yeah. But I don't think I'd say that to me. It was really just the, the relationship drama came first and the plot, was there but was secondary. Maybe and maybe maybe that's what I'm reflecting yeah. on. I yeah. think I think we're we're seeing the same thing yeah. similarly, just a little differently. But this feels funnier. This feels a little more lighthearted, even though there are some characters in dark places. Oh well that's one of the things I was gonna say. So we gather up uh, this is Nightwing putting together God, I, I, there's so much in this to unpack. Um it's Nightwing putting together a new team, mm-hmm. which is Raven, Beast Boy, Miss. Um, uh, well, I, I don't want to go there yet. Raven, uh, Beast Boy, Natasha Irons, Natasha Irons, right? and and uh, Wonder Girl, Donna yes. Troy. Yes, yes, and he gathers them, and then there's another person added to the team. Yes, which is Miss Martian, and he is doing all of this with the sanction of the Justice League. And this is one of the things that I got to talk about that I really liked. Yeah. So, yeah, they he shows up and he's talking to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, right? And they're like, yeah, we want you, you know, this thing is happening, and we're glad you came to us because, yeah, we agree that this is a problem. And, by the way, I guess I should interject here. The problem that he, is, that he wants to deal with yeah. is uh, with the breaking of the source wall, there's all this new unknown ener- energy and all this and whatever, they don't even know how to classify yeah. some of it. But it's Coming basically through. triggering metagenes. Right. That's triggering transformations or or even people that are already have meta powers yeah. is triggering changes in them, i.e. Yeah. Beast Boy is one of them. Or these. in some cases they're not even necessarily like the sci-fi side of it, but there are these Correct. cosmic demons that are possessing people. Mm-hmm. So he wants, and Nightwing has identified this, and wants to form a team specifically to engage and react to these people and either help them or stop the ones that are actual threats or whatever the case this may be. This is DC's answer to the X-Men. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's the, the I know under Bendis, when Bendis was writing X-Men, it was kind of the... the uncanny X-Men set and, up and, he had. And was, I guess... Let's it, find it, new mutants yeah. and... Bring them in and train them. That's sort of what they're doing here. Or I guess more recently in Marvel, that maybe even be in humans more than yeah, more than X Men. But it's It's a very Marvel idea that you don't necessarily see a lot of in DC, and that excites me. Um, But so, kind of stepping back from from what the purpose of that book was, one of the things I love is is so he shows up and he's talking to the big three, and they're like, "Yeah, we want you to do this as a uh, kind of as you know as a, a official sanctioned piece of the Justice League." And he's like, okay, that's fine. But just so you know, like, I didn't come here asking your approval to do this. I came here to tell you I'm doing it. Yeah. If you want it to be part of the Justice League, that's cool and fine. But, like, just so you know. <laughs> and I liked that distinction that yeah. he wasn't asking permission. 
but at the same time, he's not rejecting what they're offering, mm-hmm. right? And I like that. I think there's, if not entirely explicitly, yeah. implicitly, like, I think you see a little bit the change that happens to the Justice League that having Martian Manhunter in the mix brings. I think you're right. Um, and there's a tonal shift that very explicitly is in Snyder's book mm-hmm. that implicitly is present in this one. And I really like that, that, that change that that new MO carries through to this, even in the, the very little bit of it that's actually involving the justice league. And then we get to the one part of the book that I did not care for. And I don't, cause I, I just, I didn't see it. I, I've never seen it the same way. And that's that the justice league and even the Titans themselves talk about how, you know, Oh, the, the Titans team that he had just before this kind of blew up or, or failed or blah, blah, blah. And I, I just, I mean, okay, sure. Like any team made mistakes, but like every single team that is out there makes mistakes. And there's were certain I didn't see any like it, it wasn't like a big story plot that this whole thing ha- it didn't feel that way to me I guess is yeah I don't, I, I don't understand why people keep referring to it that way and harping on it and making it that so much that beat definitely missed for me yeah. in Titans I'm not going to hold that against this book because you got to dance with the one who brought you. Exactly, uh, and that and that was uh, so. I pointed out that I was. I, yeah. It just kind of was like, really? Why are you okay? Fine, whatever. And then I moved on. Yeah, because the rest of this is fantastic. Yeah, and I think at this point, this gives Abnet purchase to move on. It does. It does as well. Um. So, and then I mentioned the team lineup. One of the things that I love about this team lineup, especially as they go through and introduce these different characters, you find out, like, all of them are, as you mentioned, in a dark place. All of them have something going on that is really bothering them. I mean, Donna Troy, her whole reaction to the whole Troya thing that came out of the last And she's still grappling with finding out that she was never... Right. She never had the life that she yes. thought she did. Uh, Beast Boy is, he is one of the ones, he's affected by this new um, metagene triggering stuff that his powers, he's kind of losing control of them. Yeah. It, uh, I, I don't mean to keep comparing it to the X-Men because it feels yeah. like a very different thing. I, I but get it reminds you, me I get of like why the you Beast secondary yeah. transformation when yeah. he's like, I've gone from furry and blue to furry and blue and a gorilla or a lion or whatever yep. he transforms into when, you know, a new creative team takes over. Right. <laughs> uh, Nightwing is struggling with his his failure to lead this team before this and his, you yeah. know, what happened to them. And I think at a very fundamental level, even just his his inability to escape being viewed as a second stringer. Right. I think a lot of... And this is maybe why that beat of the Titans fail failed yeah. bothers me less. I actually really like this beat of him trying to operate at the same mm-hmm. level. There's something meta about it to me. If I, I him trying to operate at the same yeah. level as an A-list hero. Right. Because he's been around as long as longer, longer than, most, than most of them. Yeah. But still just can't get any respect. I I like the place that it puts him. Yeah. It just, it was one of those, like, is this how you had to do it? Whatever. And like I said, I, I moved on from that. Yeah. But um, it's, it's funny because Raven is kind of the least 
dark or as far as like in a dark place character in, yeah. <laughs> on the steam. <laughs> I feel like, and this must have come from that Raven 12 issue that Wolfman did a couple of years ago. I feel like they've moved Raven into this place that I've never seen her where she is. Not this dark brooding demon's daughter, but right. like a person who wants to be cool and chill and just picks up on everyone's emotions so much that that's hard for her and something she struggles with. She doesn't want to be isolated and alone, but sometimes it's just the only way for her to breathe. Well, and a huge part of that was the de-aging of her. I mean, yeah. she is very much a teenager and dealing with teenager emotion and angst and that in relation to feeling. And I mean, so she feels not only her own feelings about all of this, but everybody else's as well. Um, yeah. You know what else this issue did have? Brian's quote of the week. It did have Brian's quote of the week. Brian's quote of the week. Cool, cool. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Nightwing is talking to Donna Troy, trying to convince her to join the team. And uh, she's like, she, she's really kind of resistant at first and all this. And so finally she's like, so you're like trying to, you know, bring this and rebrand the team for what we had before. And so he's like, yeah, that's the kind of thing. And so anyway, she's finally, she's like, so do you have, do you have a name for this team? He goes, well, I, I, I was just going to add a new one to it. <laughs> she goes, Grayson, you suck at rebranding. Yeah. <laughs> it made me laugh because there have been so many new Titans, new Teen Titans, new, new, new. But that was uh, that was good. Um, the last thing I want to point out, as if all of what we said wasn't enough, this book is damn beautiful. Yes. Um, I, like it is. I've talked several times on the show about how I'm very picky about my superhero. I don't want to say picky. Like there's some styles that, for me personally, do not lend themselves as well mm-hmm. to superhero books. This style wins itself perfectly to superhero books. And the thing you commented on to me before we started recording was something we talk about occasionally. The facial expressions alone communicate so much information. Yes. Without without ever needing it to be said out loud. Uh, And I have to wonder a little bit if that's not something that maybe... Abner is trying to bring forward from Aquaman because you saw an Aquaman when Shayat came on mm-hmm. and they started being more art forward. Yes. Using expression and art to say more than just Na- narration or exposition or text bubbles or whatever. Uh, and I get kind of that vibe here too, that it's leading into how can we communicate this with gesture, with facial expression, with nonverbal I don't think you've even realized probably what's so crazy about what we just talked about, though. Do you know there's nine different artists on this? Is that really the case? Yeah. I I knew it shifted in style from, from page to page, you know, here and there. I did not realize that many. And um, some of them are as teams doing, doing okay, pages. Okay, yeah. So some of them are like... Inker letter, probably inker. so. So I, and so they're they're you know they are art, they're listed as art, have, not as like you know inkers or art. Or, you even right. have one, two, three, four, five, yes. six, seven different colorists on this. Yes. Thing. So that's amazing. The fact that it the look can be and here's the deal: you can tell if you look and compare pages, you can yeah. tell probably the yeah. Thing. But the tone and the feel of the book is consistent through the whole thing. Yeah. And by the way, there's two faces that I show. I, I, I if I dig down deep enough and find out guarantee that's nicholas scott probably who is on here yeah 
There were there's two that in particular that just I was like blown yeah. away by. Very very probably. But yeah. All right. Super great book. We talked obviously a lot about it because I loved yeah. it. Yeah. I'm so excited about where this goes. I put it back on my pillow. <laughs> yeah, of course you did because it's damn good. <laughs> I'm a sucker. Nancy Drew number one. Wow. Um. This is a new series from Dynamite. Yes. Uh, it is by uh, Kelly Thompson. Yes. Yes. With art by Jen Saint Ange. Saint Ange. Saint Ange. O N G E. Yeah. Is how you spell it. Yeah. Um, um, and colors by Triona Farrell. I was very excited about this because, like, coming off of the the uh, the Hawkeye run, right? Mm-hmm. Like, super in love with Kelly Thompson doing mm-hmm. female characters and hero. You know, hero I mean, people. Hawkeye, yeah. and I don't think you've read it yet, but that uh, shining stormtrooper lady from episode seven and eight. Oh, uh, uh, Phasma. That Phasma book is still, I think, one of the most impressive Star Wars books to me. All right. Just because of how much it sounds like Gwendolyn Christie's voice and makes a brooding, silent character who does not get to shine in the movie really feel fully fleshed out. Okay. All right. Um, This one, though, I was especially based off of the art that I had seen because all I'd seen is cover art, right? I hadn't seen any interiors. Um, And when I picked it up... The interior is so very different from the cover art. Assuming you're talking about the A cover, yeah. There were like four different covers. Uh, it's different from pretty much all the covers, though. Four is, or the fourth, the, the okay. D cover is close because it's the interior artist. Okay. The rest, the, the other covers <laughs> the that rest I had of them, seen there is were, more, yeah. it was not what I was expecting. And I'll be honest, it threw me a lot. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is, I don't think this is what I signed up for. Um, While we're on the cover, though, I've got to say it is one of the best lineup of cover artists I've seen on a book that's not like a major milestone issue 100 or issue or 1, Batman number 50. <laughs> Batman number 50. Good God. Um, like, I really had trouble deciding which of these four covers did I want because they're four of my favorite artists doing covers. Yeah, I, I might have gotten three of them. <laughs> because, of course, I did. Of course, you did. They're so pretty, though. <laughs> I gotta have the pretty covers. They are, um, um, but the more I read through the story, the more I loved the art that was tied to it. I think the art. This is another one that just has fantastic physical and facial expression. It does, but it's so. Just to describe the art to you, it's very the probably the closest. It's almost like a lumberjanes esque type. Yeah. I mean. If you wanted to make a Saturday morning cartoon yes, yeah. that was Nancy Drew, yeah. make these models your character models. Yeah, like uh, like almost Kim Possible, maybe not as angular as the Kim Possible, but, yeah. but that kind of... Yeah, that's actually a really good comparison. Yeah. Um, but like I said, is the more I read through the story and the way that, she, that Kelly Thompson is portraying these characters, oh my God, it fits so well. And the... Art and the voice that that Kelly Thompson has, like the two of them work so well together because I found myself reading this almost at like a West Wing Gilmore Girls kind of clip. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Almost patter in speech. Well, because she is, she is, man, she's just firing off these, yeah. But the whole, like, between sort of, you have narration boxes and then dialogue, and they kind of talk to each other a little bit almost mm-hmm. uh but then you have conversations just the whole thing i eventually like a few pages and settled into this rhythm that was just very much like 
people who know each other very well quickly and excitedly talking while walking down the hall. And it's like, yeah, okay, this is... This and, is patter. This is and realistic I, and... Can I tell you how much I love the way that the who they've made these characters into oh yeah oh my god like the their presentation of these characters is fantastic i have to ask brian okay and this might be a minor spoiler how much did you lose it when joe and frank hardy oh of course i did like like when they said oh i knew somebody that can help us i was like Please let it be. Please let it be. Please let it be. It's the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, but again, like coming out of like the Hardy Boy, the Big Lie, which was Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, mm-hmm. which was a very, very, I, I mean, I've told it on the thing, a very noir book. Yeah. Fantastic, by the way. If you haven't read it yet, you still need to get it. <laughs> um, I will. Okay. I will. Um, but yeah, this is very, a very, very different presentation of the characters. Like much more. Kind of low key, like not noir. How's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, again, it's that kind of Saturday morning cartoon. Not glib, but if it were any less earnest, it would be kind of patter. But I love how they acknowledge the things without having to feel like they have to dig into them. Yeah, or at least not right now. Right? Maybe they do later. Maybe they don't. But you're and you feel like you'd be fine either way. Yeah, yeah. Like they introduce because it's like you know something about Joe Hardy. Who we almost dated, you know, before. It's complicated. Don't worry about yeah. it. And then it's, and Frank Hardy. And we almost dated. It's complicated. See the note that I said before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's it. And, and then like on. the next page, yeah. Bess is all over. Yes. Frank? Was it Frank? No, Joe. Was? Okay, Joe. Yeah. And Joe is reacting to Bess. Yeah. Yes. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's so much fun. And I don't see any reason why you couldn't like, hand it to a younger person either no there was nothing in here there was nothing in here that that mm -mm. what's your favorite character the goat or do you think the goat's getting a little full of himself (laughs) the goat is definitely full of himself but he may have earned it yeah (laughs) the goat is pretty awesome (laughs) magic order number one the first mark miller netflix joint collaboration book yeah, so if those of you who, did, who don't know, like Netflix bought Malar World, yeah, like the whole thing, um, they, which is why you see so many of those coming into uh, production by Netflix now, yeah. right? Um, this is the first one that he has developed as, as a comic property since that purchase. Yes, um, and oh shit, it was really good. <laughs> it was so good. Three pages in, I was like, okay, I'm sold. I am totally, totally sold. Yes. And if they make this into a damn show, good, good. It's going to be so good. Yeah. The setup here is there are magicians in the world Mm -hmm. who are descendants of people who basically vanquished monsters and can see this sort of other piece of reality, other side of reality. Right. And they are tasked with, we learn throughout the issue, keeping all of that at bay and the world's safe, and there's an inner circle that is, like, those families, members who are right. fighting to do that. Yeah, it, it's, uh, there's there's this thing called the Order, mm-hmm. right? Who is this, the, who is the organization that all of these magicians are part of that, that do this to fend off this yeah. bad stuff? Yeah. yeah. And someone starts killing members of the inner circle. Yes. Um, and... 
we very quickly get introduced to uh, three characters who are part of the same family. Yes, it's you, a family you, drama. You, well, you, you get a very strong feeling that the magic that is in magicians is, is runs yeah. through hereditary. Yeah. It's, we meet four of them, right. by the way. Uh, we do, yeah, we do. But I was, I was saying very quickly we get three. Like yeah, the boom, first boom, boom. three yeah. we see really early. But um, we see one of them. Yeah. We, we see a, it's a father and his and three of his kids. Yes, yeah, two sons and a daughter. Uh, and as is a wonderful concept for either a TV show or a comic or whatever your story you're telling, one of them has left the life. Yeah, yes, and forsworn it. We've got like the perfect child, yeah, and then. The sort of burnout child, and then the yeah. one who's walked away. Yes. Yeah. And the dad is uh, the traditional, not like traditional, like stuffy, but like he does, he still does a stage magic show. Yeah. Because one of this family has been doing stage magic since, since 1885. Right. And so there has to be, and he talks about how. Um, you know, and there's no one to take over for me because all of my kids are have their own lives and have chosen to do something different. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, this is very. It's also oh my funny. god, the daughter. It's funny. <laughs> I assume escapologist. What's that? Look behind you. Yes, and she's like in the rearview mirror, running down the street out of the cop car, it's like, handcuffs what? in the seat. Yes. Yeah. Well, how'd she do that? <laughs> the, Cause the it's so funny. She's so we the first time we meet her, she's in the back of a cop car, mm-hmm. and the cop is like talking to her. He's like, "You're a, you're a magician at a kid's birthday party. How do you get arrested doing that?" She's like, "Well, it probably started going bad when I was fucking the dad, and the mom walked into the kitchen." Cause it's like, oh my god. <laughs> The takeaway here is probably not to pour vodka over your cereal when you're out of milk. <laughs> I love this character. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, no, she's my favorite, too. Yeah, they're, they're all different. They're all wonderful. And I can't wait to see where this is going. And there's obviously, there's the uh, faction of this order that kind of has rejected this whole protection of yeah. humanity thing. And there's obviously tension there. and that's The dark wizards who everyone yeah. assumes is behind the murders. And probably, of course, won't be, but we'll see. Yeah. Domino number three. I know we're breaking our rule talking about a number three, but how fucking good is this book? Like, I can't keep saying, oh my God, this book was so good this week. But I'm going to keep saying that. I feel like Jen, good, good book. <laughs> well, we get a lot of Domino's history. We do get a lot of Domino's history. And when you said Gail Simone was on this week, mm, I, I love this. I... This is one of the biggest surprises to me. It, it is year. because this character is one of those that it's not that I ever dislike this character. It's just there was nothing that really pulled me to this character. Yeah, This book is so doing that. Like she is one of my favorite characters right now. Yeah. She's yeah. fantastic. Ah, she's wonderful. Uh, and her like, it, 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 you know, in some ways it's that same kind of. Uh, character interaction that the Nancy Drew had that we talked about yeah. with her and Amadeus and her friends. And it's just that comfortable friend and, and that banter between them is very, very open and comfortable and uh, honest. There's also in this issue in particular, a little bit of an all new Wolverine vibe because this gets into her working through past traumas and why she kind of, Keeps people close, but never too close. Right. And, uh, like, has Jen read this week's? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. Because that last page for her? 
I mean, I read this book, and this is Jin in a comic. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear what her reaction to that last page is. I cannot think of another book that I've ever read where I flip through as much thinking, no, that sounds just like Jin. Yeah. Like, literally, from, from the migraines to the to the friends that, you know, you love, but, yeah, like, everything, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exiles number four. This is... If I have been looking forward to an issue of this series that I looked forward to itself for months and have been very into, it has been this issue because Blackbeard. Ben Grimm as Blackbeard is one of my absolute favorite Marvel things. I was going to say, because you know this isn't new, right? You, you, I no, mean, I know. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, you've heard my pitch for a Fantastic Four movie. Yes, and yes. I'm I, yep, there because mm-hmm, okay, there's a microphone in front of me. Mm-hmm. I love Ben Grimm as Blackbeard. Like yes. this is the oh, locks, yeah. this is the wallpaper on my phone right now. The cover of this issue. Perfect. This is definitely my favorite issue of this series so far. Mm-hmm. But what I really, really wanted to call out in this issue, mm-hmm. I mean, um, above the writing, which is hilarious and wonderful, is wait, the wait, art, wait. especially oh. on a particular double page spread. Um, is it is it the fact that Rebecca Barnes shows back up and this Rebecca Barnes wants a thing with? Oh Valkyrie no, I absolutely too. loved that, but that is not specific. I mean, I love that. <laughs> That's like, oh, and and Iron Lad's reaction. How does she do this? <laughs> so the art across the board in this book is great. It's it's Javier Rodriguez, Alvaro mm-hmm. Lopez, and Chris O'Halloran, uh, penciling, inking, and coloring. But there is a two-page spread in which all hell breaks loose, and you have pirate battles. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. You have pirate battles of three different ships worth of pirates, and uh, let's say a sentient secret weapon of sorts barreling through. And I didn't count, but if there are not 50 (laughs) figures on this page, maybe, maybe... 35, 45. Just to give you an idea, it almost looks like a Where's Waldo page. Yes. Yeah, like it's that packed with stuff. But I want to give props to not just the art team on how clear it is, but specifically to the letterer, as strange as that sounds, because uh, yeah. that's Joe Caramagna. This page would be a mess if it weren't lettered right. I agree. Well, that and the fact that I'm I'm counting what probably 15 different drawn-in sound effects. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's part of the lettering, right? Yeah. Uh, usually, more more often than not, the letterer does the sound effects. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, like, it, it, and that is much harder to do in a big busy page with all of this. Yeah. But you're you're looking at a page where, even though it's a two-page spread, time passes from left to right on the page. Mm-hmm. And conversation happens in specific action. Specific but it's super sequence. easy to follow. And the way everything is laid out, and the way everything is lettered, nothing is ever obscured. You never, the eye never goes to the wrong place. It's never unclear how you should read this page. Nope. Even though it easily could have been, and that is as much the letterer as the artist. I agree. I agree one hundred percent. And I want to make the point because. If any, if there's anything that people talking about comics gloss over, us included, it's letters. Letters, right? Because if you do that job right, you don't want people thinking about it. Correct. But you take one look at this page, and you're like, that. 
I have to imagine that, that when, when Joe Carabagna got this page, the first thing he did was go pour a drink. It's what I would have done. I know I would have, right? Yeah. Because yeah. um, you don't want to cover any of it I'll be, I'll be honest. When I flipped to this page, I was like, uh, I'm going to have trouble figuring out where to read. Same. No trouble. No, None. Not at all. Like, you just flow right through the page. It was beautiful. Uh, and there are definitely books that have pages like this that I've had to like, okay, go back to the start of the page and try reading in a different order to see what makes sense. Yes. Yes. Uh, but in general, this whole issue is just wonderful and my favorite so far. I think I've said that already. Uh, and we learn, we learn who is behind the consumption of reality. We do. And it's not exactly the answer we'd expected. Uh, it's not really a surprise that it's this person, but you're right. It's probably yeah. not who I would have thought. There was maybe a little bit of a scapegoat built into an earlier issue. Mm, maybe. There's more to that than met the eye. Yeah. I will say, uh, by the way, we, it's not just Captain Blackbeard, Ben Grimm. We get two other captains in this. We do. And, and, and we should point out who they are because they're pretty wonderful. Yeah. We get Captain Falcon. <laughs> Same Wilson. Falcon Punch! <laughs> Falcon Punch. And we get drive. Uh, her ship is the Misty, if that yes. should give you. And it is, of course, uh, Misty Knight. Captain Mercedes. Mercedes Knight, Knight yes. Yeah. Sam doesn't have a ship because he can fly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he has to go, he has to go uh, cologne himself before, yeah. <laughs> before. Shave and cologne. Shave and cologne himself before uh, Mercedes Knight shows up, yes. Yeah, this issue just. Absolutely did not disappoint. No, not at all. Marvel 2-in-1 annual number one. Uh, Doom v. Doom. Doom v. Doom. Doom v. Reeds. Doom v. Reeds. The Council of... Yes. I love the Council of Reeds. The Council of Reeds. Sorry, Rick and Morty. Jonathan Hickman did it first. He did. And uh, Chip brings it back. Chip brings it back. (laughs) And we get... I mean, kind of the thing that this issue teases, the thing that it really hinges on, is we get answers about what happened to Doom from the end of Secret Wars to the beginning of what came after. Yes. Yeah, we do. Um, um, and we see explicitly how he went from point A to point B, and the cracks are starting to show. I'm afraid. I was just I love, about to say the same thing. I love Doom as hero, and I know... Like, comics trade and status quo, eventually the toys go back in the box and get reset because you need things to stay recognizable. And something as drastic as Doom as a hero is never going to be permanent. But here's the thing that I love. I love it so much that there actually feels like weight to going back. Well, it feels tragic, nevertheless. What I love about it is exactly what you said. The cracks are starting to show. It is not a reaction of his to something and now he's just evil again right it is very much a and i I, it's not even just this book or it it really is kind of everything he's in like and i when tony stark shows back up and he starts doubting okay well now what is my place which is clearly after this yeah but in this we see there's an opportunity for him to make a choice Mm -hmm. and we see that yeah there's he is still who he is yeah. Right, um, and he doesn't like he doesn't go all bad. No, 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 he not still at all. That's and that's my point. Doing the good they're cracks. Things. They're not yeah. a flip. They're not a change. But it's gonna hurt when he does break bad again. It's going It's like it's I, like in Superior Spider Man. Yeah. If you know how good stories get structured, mm-hmm. it was not hard to look at the first few issues of that and say, okay, the only way this can end. 
is with Otto making a heroic sacrifice yeah. and doing a certain thing. And it never made it any less moving when he did it. It hit maybe even harder because you knew that eventually that moment was going to come and what's going to be the thing that makes him realize it. Right. And this is sort of that, but in reverse. This is, you know, Doom eventually has to go back to being the recognizable villain, but it's going to hurt when it happens. Yeah. I, I could spend a long time with him in this kind of in-between. Yeah. Not hero and not villain. Yeah. yeah. And I hope we do see some of that. Yeah. Uh, and to some degree, we already saw shades of that for years leading up with, with like his relationship to Valyria and yeah. those things that softened him. Well, or him and Nadia in Avengers. Yeah. yeah. Um, let him start a think tank of young superhero women. <laughs> mm, that would almost have a creepy <laughs> vibe to it a little bit maybe yeah. but such a great book yes um, well here's the one thing here's the they, they've clearly set up long like long term a potential to whenever they need to pull him back into this type of character yeah and you know we, we know that from Iron Man in that you know he's gonna have a child at some point that's true yeah yeah. And we know how Although he feels about Although he already kids. has a child. And and that has not gone great for him. No, but can you imagine him having can you imagine him having a daughter that turns out to be super super smart? I mean that would be right. actually very good. I yeah. have not thought about that. Thor number 1. Okay, yeah. Uh, there's a lot to this one too. <laughs> yes. Uh so we don't necessarily talk about Thor a lot mostly because when Mike, Mike and Jen and Brian all jumped back in. A lot of Aaron's run was already in process. Yeah. Uh, and me, I had started reading Aaron's run. And then just because I had to cut stuff for budget reasons, I wound up going to trade for all of his stuff. So we all kind of live perpetually behind on this. Right. But this is a number one and we can talk about it. First of all, love the art. Yes. Del Mundo. Uh, was it Mike Del Mundo? Yeah, Mike Del Mundo yeah. in the main feature, and then the backup is Christian Ward. Uh, this was another one of those that when I opened the page, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And then about two pages in, I was like, nope, it works. It yeah. really works. <laughs> yes. Um, and a lot of this is is catch-up, but it's really well-executed catch-up that never feels like you're slogging through too it, much It doesn't feel expository. Right. It feels like it's part of them telling what's happening yeah. in this it is, story. It is enough in medias res yes. that it never feels like you're stopping. Exactly. I would agree with that. And a li- to some degree, I think it's kind of, they're kind of the beats you expect coming out of what you've come out of. Asgard's torn up. Okay. Freya and Odin are at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. There are some things that surprised me. Uh, yeah. Uh, the final fate of Jane Foster surprised me. Yes. Thor being mad at Loki is never going to surprise me. <laughs> it, there is nobody that's okay in this book. At yeah. This, at this start. It's kind of like Titans. Yeah. Heimdall doesn't have his eyes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Everyone has lost something. Yeah. Although Thor has gained a sense of humor. <laughs> Thor this reads very much like Marvel movie Thor. He does. Yes, he and does. I, I say that as a positive thing. Which is just fine. Um, yeah, I, I have no problem with that. Yeah. I very much enjoyed this book. Then we get, then the last, uh, what, probably six pages, seven pages? Yeah, the, the backup. The backup. We get a we get a second story, which is Thor Allfather. Yes, which if you've been reading 
Aaron's run, you see this version of Thor in the beginning of his run, in those first 11 issues with Gore the God Butcher. Okay. And, and so three it's Thor Allfather and his three granddaughters. Granddaughters, right. yeah. Yes. Um, and they are... The last space shark. <laughs> yes. That's oh. also a callback. Oh, is it? Yes. Okay, I did not... That I did not know. That's also a callback. The last space shark. Um, that they uh, that they turn into a vegetarian, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, basically the universe is... Like, has died and is gasping out its last breaths. Yes. Like, like blood is still flowing, but it's yeah. dead. Yeah. And, uh, spoilers here, but who should arrive, Brian, to, I guess, welcome Oblivion? Uh, Wolver Phoenix? <laughs> yeah. Wolverinix? Wolverinix. It's, uh, it's, like, old man... But wolf, but like very Wolverine, old yeah. man. I, Wolverine, you know, my favorite thing about his design with a phoenix fire around him. And my favorite thing about his design. What's that? Is that? He's wearing like a kimono. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's like old phoenix Wolverine in samurai garb, and he, his his hair is it's not it's not short cropped old man Logan. It's not Logan. It's or you know it's not Wolverine. It's like uh, ancient wise samurai master long yeah. yes white yeah it's pretty uh pretty amazing and his his claws look like they're like some sort of celestial something not yeah light you know i, I don't know but well, you know uh, when he comes back okay. from the daddy's gonna have fire claws oh well did you hear about this no He's going to have fire claws. What? Okay, I'm not even going to stop. There will be a reason. I don't know what that reason is yet. Nobody knows what it is There's yet. always a reason. Right? Read Return of Wolverine whether, number Whether one. it's a good reason. Hmm. Okay. You know what time it is. What time is it? Is it still good? All right. Is it still good? All right. Batman, Prelude to the Wedding, Batgirl versus the Riddler number one. Uh, Riddler's a creepy mofo. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Riddler is a creepy mofo. Creeper Riddler. Detective Comics number 982, Brian. Um, let's see. Uh, Friend of the show, Michael Morisi's guest issue. Yes. Um, uh, cult leader comes back to uh, enslave Gotham's abandoned. The Flash number 48. Uh, Wally and Barry begin their most dangerous race ever. Oh, that's probably true. Immortal Men number three, Brian. Um, the Batman Who Laughs shows up to uh, instruct the enemy of the Immortal Man. As a quick aside on this one, if you are like a big fan of 90s style comic storytelling, yeah. but want to see sort of a more contemporary take on it, that's really what this book is going it, it, I think you're right. I do yeah. think you're right. Almost that authority kind of... A little bit, A little yeah. bit, yeah. Uh, Immortal Men number three. That was, or, that was we what we just, just talked about. about. <laughs> Man of Steel number three. Uh, the Fortress of Solitude has an unexpected visitor. <sighs> and, and Supergirl's pissed. <laughs> yes. yes. Mr. Miracle number nine, Brian. Uh, as they discuss peace, peace terms... Calibek sees the world through rose-colored glasses. New Superman and the Justice League of China, number 24, Brian. Um, 
the Justice League of China comes to terms with who they are as the series wraps up. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 23, Brian. Oh, um, a deceased Gun gives Jason a gift that I don't know if he wanted. The clap? No, three letters from his father. Okay. Uh, Sideways number five. Sideways takes on an internet troll with super troll abilities. And we find out that Ernie is still the real hero of this book. Truth. (laughs) Bloodstrike number zero. This is the first issue of this one, so I'm going to break format a little bit. If you remember that thing I just said about uh, uh, Immortal Men? Yeah. Late 80s, early 90s? Like, if you were ever a Bloodstrike Youngbloods fan, I think this is going to be right up your alley. Uh, it is Michael Fifth, Fife, again, not sure. Okay. F-I-F-F-E, okay. who did, uh, uh, damn, what is that book called? He's got a creator-owned book called, that is, like, sort of a parody of, of Suicide Squad. That's just fantastic. And okay. the name is escaping me. It's him taking on like that era image, yeah, uh, which he was a huge fan of at the time. And this really focuses largely on that character who looks like Wolverine. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do know who you're talking about, but I can't uh, think of the name. Jim did a, uh, a yes. long box on this not long ago. Yes. Yeah. Like, and I, I think we've all picked up some like this era image yeah, yeah, in yeah. the course of it. I don't know enough about that era to like really really geek out over this yeah but i strongly get the sense having read some of it that if that is your thing you absolutely do not want to miss out on this okay um it reminds me a little bit i think in ways maybe it has some dna in common with something like uh uh x-men grand design okay in fact uh, Ed Pisker, who does that, is doing another book that's got for for Image that's going to be kind of along these same lines, focusing on one specific character. Um, it's less retelling, though, and more... I guess there were a couple of issues that left on cliffhangers on this book, and this is actually starting at those and oh, filling in okay. gaps over time. So there's a little bit of that sort of historical reconstruction happening. Got it. Um I don't like I said I don't know enough about the source material, but you can I can see the shape of the cool editorial stuff around it. That I think if that's your thing, you'll really get into it. Cool. Stellar number one. This is another Joe Keating book. We talked about flavor a few weeks back when Megan was on. This is about like a bounty hunter in space who she also is responsible for the deaths of billions of people and is trying to atone. Uh, it's it's set up as a mystery. There's not a lot of really explicit world building happening here, but the world feels lived in. Okay. Uh, it's got kind of a non-linear thing going on as well, so it's it's definitely trippy. Keating does good work, and I enjoyed this issue. I just can't tell you even really necessarily what it's about beyond that. Okay. Uh, and one more. One more. We've got one more number one, and then I'll quit breaking format. <laughs> the Weatherman number one. Oh, yeah. Is Jody LeHoop, and Nathan Fox is the penciler, I think, inker. This is set in a future after billions of people have been killed, and it follows like a sort of drunken, almost playboy weatherman who... This whole issue is like, 
he's late for his call at the news station and you see him not taking it seriously and strolling in right before he start he's supposed to start and just nailing everything and everyone loves him because he's so funny and such a clown he's got this big date that night and people are out to kill him for reasons you don't know why and then you learn that he might be responsible for the death of those billions of people oh and that's kind of the setup for yeah the the book and as a whole uh, this is a lot of fun. Uh, Jody LaHoop was one of the co-writers of Shirtless Bear Fighter. Yes. It's fun. It's brightly colored. If dead dogs make you sad, then there's a content warning on this. Okay. Yeah, this is one Sebastian Gurner was telling us about. Yeah. That he was really looking forward to seeing how yeah. people reacted to it. And I've got it. I just haven't, I haven't yeah. got to it yet. Yeah. Brian only made it through tea in the alphabet oh, this God. week because it was a really heavy week. Yeah. And a busy week. I'm surprised yeah. I finished all my reading. For That's crazy. Anyway, let's right. keep going. Hunt for Wolverine. Adam Amandium. Adam Amandium. Adam Vitamita Vegemin. Vegemita Vitamita Adamantium. Vegemitium? What? No, yeah. that's not. <laughs> Hunt for Wolverine. Adamantium Agenda, number two. Uh, Jessica and Luke respond in exactly the way that you would expect to their learning that the black market is selling their daughter's DNA. And an unexpected hero arrives to put one of the sellers in this uh, this bidding war on notice for his participation. And at this point, I'm actually going to pull up the page and show Brian, which will end in Brian going, Damn it! Now I have to read this. Because this is Tom Taylor writing. Damn it, now I have to read this. <laughs> You're an easy mark. Yeah, I know. It's Laura. It's Laura King. <laughs> Infinity Countdown Darkhawk number two. Still one of the biggest surprise series for me. This has been so, so good. Darkhawk catches up with the newly returned Raptors and gets his ass handed to him. Uh, New Mutants Dead Souls number four, Brian. Um, Ilyana deals with the aftermath of losing Richter. And yeah, that's that's pretty much this whole issue. This issue's a fucking roller coaster, right? It is, isn't it? And okay, uh, I will give credit where credit's due. This might be the best I have seen Peter be in any book in the last ever. Because he's just he's just Ileana's big brother. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the best he ever. It, is. I, that's what that's what I said. Yeah. That's the best he ever is. Uh, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 305, Brian. <laughs> um, Peter inspires Peter to be who he, to be all that he can be. Peter keeps Peter from petering out. Yes. The Punisher, number 226, Frank Storms Hydra HQ. And if you enjoyed seeing Bucky and Clint together in Tales of Suspense... You'll enjoy seeing them provide backup. It's the same writer. It's Matthew Rosenberg. Brian just put his head down and is shaking his head into the table. I must be strong. (laughs) (laughs) Quicksilver, no surrender, number two. Pietro gives his everything, basically, to stop his brightly colored doppelgangers from killing the people who are important to him. And I, I like this, but I don't know why, and I don't know where it's going. If there's, like, a book that just on paper, if you described 
to me. No, like it should not work. It should not be good. E- even reading the issue, I can't figure out why it works, but it does. It's it's the most bizarre thing. But Saladin Ahmed <gasps> just knows how to write a book. That's what it is. Quicksilver's trying to kill all the flashing colored lights that are giving Jin migraines. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man Deadpool, number 34. The Deadpool who has gone to the future meets the Spider-Man of the future, and when the future completely breaks bad, returns with future Spider-Man to the past of the current present, where future Deadpool is with present Spider-Man fucking things up. Cool, I follow that entire thing. Good. Yeah. Star Wars Darth Vader, number 17, Brian. We find out how real a Jedi Master can be. Star Wars Thrawn, number 5, Brian. We see a perfect example of just how Thrawn thinks beyond other people. Venom number two. I only need two words for this one. Symbiote dragon. Sea of Thieves number four. Everybody learns an important lesson about family and working together. Deep Roots number two. Fuck if I can tell you what's going on, but I love every page of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and I, i'm gonna the one book that i didn't get to that i really wanted to for this because the first one was so different and so good is walk through hell number two came out so oh, yeah if you enjoyed that first one go get it all right and now we're going to cut over to brian and me talking to mark russell a quick heads up this is probably the most political and certainly the most religious this podcast has ever gotten. Absolutely. But if you know Mark Russell yeah. and his work, there's a, I mean, it's kind of where you have Which to go. Which is to say, we talk about politics. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Jen will never let us record by ourselves nope. again. <laughs> there's going to be a weird, awkward cut at one point near the end of this. Yeah. I started choking to death on water. If what? I were a fish, I'd still find a way to drown. <laughs> but if you hear an awkward pause, that's why. There you go. Uh, you know what though? Uh, thank before we start. Thanks again to Mark because that was it was a great interview. I yeah. love talking to him. It was fantastic. I, like I could talk to him all day long. Yeah. If you ever get a chance to uh, catch him at a con, do yeah. so. So here that is now. All right, we're here today with Mark Russell, writer of the Flintstones and Snagglepuss Chronicles, which just wrapped up, uh, as well as some other upcoming things that we'll get into in a moment. How's it going? Going great. Hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, uh, always happy to do a, go on a podcast for some fellow geeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Uh, speaking of geeks, the first question we always like to ask people is, how did you get into nerdy stuff and comics as a fan first, and then, then we'll get to the rest? Well, as a kid... My my books of choice were actually uh, the set of world book encyclopedias we had in the <laughs> living room. So I kind of went right for the source of uh, of geekdom. But, you know, it exposed me to a lot of things. And I just would, when I came upon an entry that was interesting, usually about something about science or, or uh, history, I would then go to the paperback bookstore and buy a book and, and read more about it. And that's how I got into, like, Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, and ultimately the comics as well. That's awesome. I know I had uh, uh, I think it was an Encarta disc that came with my first IMAX. So I was a little older, but uh, that 
I had a similar experience with that, just like reading through, okay, there's all this stuff here and I can just click. I don't even have to go find the right volume. Uh, yeah, so- I, I, I can relate directly with you because we, we had the old set of encyclopedias that, you know, as, as time went on, they, they got more and more out of date and you just kind of, hmm. Yeah. But, you, but you'd still like that smell of them and all that. It was, you're right. It was great. Yeah, I, my mom would take us to the library when I was a kid too. And uh, so you could pick out two books. And I'd always return with some book that had like a rocket on it with like Adolf Hitler's face. <laughs> or something like that. She, uh, two other books, uh, but you know, it's kind of like just taking just wild guesses at what I might like to read in the library based upon the covers too. I think it kind of kind of was a gateway drug for comics because I became very I didn't really know a lot about literature or anything, so I became very visually oriented. I was making choices based upon the cover art that appealed to me. Is that how you jumped into also writing about? So before you before you wrote comics, you wrote uh, 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 about religion, and you've got a comic coming up soon uh, called Second Coming, which I know you know, but you know maybe someone at home doesn't yet. Uh, that gets into that's that's based around the idea of Jesus coming back to Earth and learning from a superhero. Is that how you got into that angle too, or did that come from somewhere else? Well, I grew up in a very religious household, uh, like like a fundamentalist Christian household. So religion is like kind of like to me what maybe like uh, a prison camp would be to someone in North Korea. <laughs> or, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to write about anything else if you've been there. You know, yeah. it's kind of always part of you. And not to say it was as horrifying an experience. There's a lot of really wonderful things about being in a religion and feeling like you know your place in the universe and you're surrounded by people who, you know, support you. There's a lot of really wonderful things about it, too. It just, uh, I think my, my, the big question sort of underlying a lot of my work is how do we keep that sort of, sort of community and the good things that we get from religion and civilization without, you know, like the murder <laughs> and, you know, the uh, enslavement. Yeah, And uh, I think what informed me, what really kind of pushed me to want to write a book about the Bible was that everyone has an automatic opinion about the Bible. Either it's the complete literal word of God, or it's just a bunch of garbage and you shouldn't listen to a word in it. And nobody really seems to know what's actually in it. It's like a parlor game, but we don't, aren't playing by the same rules. We don't, mm. It's like you're playing a card game, where one person's got poker cards, and the other one's got, like, Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> it, so I wanted to create a deck of cards where believers and non-believers alike could play from the same set. Well, yeah, it's even, it's even more complicated because you have people that think it's just a history book or et cetera. So it's like, you know, there's like five or six different decks that you're trying to, I guess, reference. And so, yeah, yeah that I makes a lot of sense. The irony is that the, uh, the, the fundamentalists, like the one I grew up with, and the like, the hardcore atheists who believe that the gar- Bible is both is complete garbage, kind of have exactly the same interpretation of the Bible, which is <laughs> that it's the 100% literal word of God. It's just that the fundamentalists think if I see something that contradicts the word of God, I have to reject it because I know the, the Bible is true. Whereas the atheists say because I could see these things which are not literally true in the Bible, I can dismiss the Bible as being completely worthless. And they're both kind of missing the point, both of why the Bible is written and also the value it presents for humanity, 
which to me, as I began writing this book, I discovered wasn't that it was like this all-knowing religious book of how you should live your life, but it was about 66 different authors struggling to figure out what it was God wanted from them, trying to figure out what their place in the universe should be. It's infinitely more profound when you think about it that way. And a lot more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's basically, a, the Bible is basically a, like a, like a, a Jewish debate, a Jewish family arguing over religion. <laughs> uh, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I, uh, we're, we're both in the South and from the South and I'm, I assume Brian had the same. I don't think we've ever really talked about it much, but I definitely was raised in a Baptist church every Sunday and I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh yes. But, very, but very my, much. uh, my, my comic book, uh, that's coming out on Vertigo, Second Coming, takes kind of a similar approach in that, you know, when I was writing the book about the Bible, the most fascinating character, hands down, is Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who sort of inherently rejected the idea that, that revenge is what makes the world work, which is kind of the embedded ideology of, you know, Moses and the Romans, and, you know, basically everybody just comes up with new sort of nuances of why their, their system of revenge is better than your system of revenge. And he was like the first and only guy in the Bible and in the ancient world, you know, in the Western tradition anyway, who said, well, no, wait, revenge sucks. <laughs> it's like, really, if, if the most radical idea you can have is forgiveness or, or not caring about, you know, money or wealth. And once you do that, and no empire can touch you, you're, once you become incorruptible, like they can't bribe you with things, they can't scare you, it's like you're completely out of their control. And that was the most radical idea probably of the ancient world or, frankly, the modern one. And I want to like bring that into the, uh, the comic I'm doing where it's like he's kind of the polar opposite of the superhero who he's rooming with. Because the superhero, again, is just like, well, I've got these enormous powers. What better way to, the, to use them than systematic revenge, you know? Uh, and uh, but he's really just kind of doing what every civilization has tried and failed to do over the last three thousand years. Whereas Jesus comes back and he's like, "Well, okay, let me try this one more time." You know, the first time didn't go so well for him. He had a brief stint, thirty-three years, that you know ended somewhat acrimoniously. <laughs> but uh, and maybe if he gives it a second chance, it will, you know, forgiveness and uh, will work this time. Well, I, I like that. And I like that premise of, of kind of comparing, you know, the first time he came, he completely sort of rebelled against what the established religion was at that time. Even, you know, Christian, the established religion uh, of, of Judaism that he was born into. So the idea of him coming back again and looking at things and go, nope, this still isn't right is, uh, you know, kind of yeah. fits right in with that almost. Yeah. Yeah, to my uh, way of thinking, he's really the, the good guy in the Bible, and he's sort of the good guy in my comic, too. He's like, he has this sort of unique perspective that we've all seemed to have kind of gotten away from. I think even Christians don't really follow the teachings of Christ anymore. They use him more as a, as a team mascot, where our system of revenge is good because we do it in the name of Jesus, even though Jesus himself was completely against the sort of, you know, imperialized revenge or the sort of institutional violence to keep people in line. That was like the core of his mission was to sort of get away from that. Yeah. I mean, even, even in terms of not just, you know, previous religious dogma as authority, but if you 
get into, say, what happens at Gethsemane, you see him outright question God's will in the Bible as well, yeah. not to turn this yeah. into, I guess, too much us sitting and debating religion, <laughs> but it's yeah. not just it's dogma, a, it's I, also... This is a, it's, a theology podcast, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jid leaves one week, and this is what we do. <laughs> no, no. no. Um, um, but yeah, it's authority is also on the table for him. Right. Yeah, it really is about the limitations of authority. I think it's really what the comic is about, about how you can only threaten and scare people so so far, but in the end, you really what you got to do if you're going to change anything is is make people better. Absolutely, I like it. So, so let me. I'm oh, sorry. I go was going to ask. So uh, uh, the comic itself aside, how did you get? I don't want to say pulled into, but involved in this uh, DC relaunch of Vertigo. Oh, well, um, I had actually pitched this idea of Jesus Christ sharing a two-bedroom apartment with a superhero <laughs> as a Superman comic. And yeah. they, they said, well, I haven't heard that idea before. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, we get death threats if he refuses to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So do not implicate us in your blasphemy, sir. So, but they told me if I wanted to do it as a creator-owned thing, that they'd be open to that. So that I pitched it to Vertigo and... Uh, Dan DiDio and Mark Doyle have uh, been really helpful, and uh, Molly May and my uh, my editors have been really really great about it. So uh, I'm really looking forward to finally getting this in readers' hands and see where it goes. Yeah, it it sounds great. I'm super excited for this this whole batch of Vertigo books. Uh, and it they hit in October, is that right? October November? Yeah, right. Yeah. Starting October. Yeah, there's so many when they were announced. I you know I was just reading the. You know, one idea after another, I just kept thinking, oh, I wish I'd come up with that idea. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> yeah, as I was reading through them, I was like, oh, wow, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds good, too. <laughs> <laughs> there was also an announcement today while we're talking about new stuff, and then I do definitely want to double back and talk Snagglepuss and Flintstone some, oh, too, yeah, some too. But there was an announcement today about Ahoy Comics and Edgar yes. Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror. The Snifter of Terror. Yes, I will be part of that. I've, uh, I've, uh, I've got a 14-page story in issue number one. So can, what can you tell us about it? Well, when you think of horror, the first thing that comes to mind is probably Count Chocula. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I wrote. I wrote like a 14-page, basically, a Count Chocula vampire revenge story. Although I couldn't use Count Chocula because, you know, he's intellectual property rights and everything. Sure. Yeah. So, so in my version, he's the Marquis de Coco. <laughs> that is brilliant. I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and yeah, like little facsimiles for uh, Captain Crunch and the Lucky Charms Leprechaun and Frankenberry and Booberry make their appearances at his breakfast table. But the premise is basically that, you know, the worst thing in the world is to be a vampire who's known for having breakfast. Because <laughs> they don't want to be out in the daylight, you know. Right. But to me, it's like whoever thought of that. It's like this person's a, uh, a sadist. Whoever thought of this <laughs> vampire who has to eat breakfast. <laughs> that's that's a good point. So I, it's basically the premise is that he was known for these lavish breakfast parties. The Marquis was, uh, but then he was turned into a vampire. But to prevent suspicion, because everyone are being devoured by vampires, and there there's a lot of paranoia about vampires. So to cast suspicion off himself, he has to keep the pretense of having these breakfast parties uh, 
so that people won't suspect that he's a vampire. And, and meanwhile, everyone's enjoying the breakfast cereal and ha- laughing and having a good time. And he's just slowly disintegrating in the sunlight. Uh, he has to sort of conceal his pain from everyone while they're eating. And that's kind of the, the basic premise of the story. <laughs> that's uh-huh. wonderful. So, uh, so the, is the, the Edgar, it's an anthology book that's coming out? Yeah, it's, it's a okay. series. But yeah, it's an anthology. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. A lot of different authors involved in each one, but there's going to be multiple issues. Excellent, excellent. Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Bryce Singman is going to be making his comics debut in uh, The Snifter of Terror, which I'm really looking forward to as well. Let's talk about Snagglepuss. Uh, it just wrapped up last week, and I don't think Brian and I actually have gotten a chance to talk about it at all with each other yet. We haven't, because I didn't read the last issue until last night. So, And another of our occasional guest hosts, uh, Megan and I, talked about it last week and a she said on the air so i'll say this on the air to pass along to you how much it made her cry in front of people and to thank you for that uh good uh it's it's all about humiliation yeah yeah that's that's usually what i go for um but yeah this is snagglepuss as for anyone who maybe didn't pick it up isn't aware of it uh this is snagglepuss as kind of a Tennessee Williams type playwright in the fifties dealing with not just McCarthyism, but also the treatment of the gay community in that time. Um, right. So before we get into, I guess maybe how it wrapped up and call spoilers for it. Uh, how did it come to be? Where did, where did the idea to take a cartoon character and make him, make him a, a, quippy witty playwright fighting right-wing establishment come from well if you if you think about the premise of snagglepuss it becomes kind of obvious i mean he's like this this pink lion the sort of icon in the gay community and even in like back in the 60s people kind of you know realized that he was he was gay they just didn't really talk about it and you know he, he obviously has a background in theater because all of his catchphrases are theater related you know, heavens to Murgatroyd and uh, uh, exit stage left for both theater references. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what would that have been like for somebody who's obviously got a background in theater? It is closeted as a closeted gay man to be like working in that environment in the creative hotbed that was New York in the 1950s, but also within the hotbed of paranoia that was the United States at the same time. That in the world of just like the idea that it was like this intensely creative time and stage and film and television, but also uh, an equally repressive time in terms of politics and how are these two conflicting, clashing forces work and what sort of how would lives, individual lives be lost in the clash between culture and politics? Was was that question at all brought about by? current events or and i ask this because comics development starts way ahead of time or was this something that was percolating well before some of these same same voices started bubbling up in in our world today well yeah it was percolating well before i mean i've been sort of writing these little snippets uh, and putting them on facebook of like dialogue i imagine snagglepuss and huckleberry hound having like years ago but um yeah, politics and culture and current events 
kind of work their way into everything I do because I'm somebody who lives in this world. I can't, I don't understand, you know, people say we should, shouldn't keep politics out of comics. I don't understand what they're thinking about the rest of the time when they're not writing comics. <laughs> I mean, even the act wait, of not talking about it is a political decision. Yeah, exactly. What they really mean is the politics of the status quo are the only politics that should be in comics. Right. Well, one of the, and this is just in general, like uh, almost everything, of, and I've read a good, I think a pretty good bit of yours as far as comic books go, uh, everything that you seem to write definitely seems to have that. Um, there's something there. It's not just a story, you know, a fictional story that's told. There's definitely a, some real world, either consequences or information or uh you, it's very clear you put a lot of that into your stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is intentional, obviously, and yeah. but a lot of it is also subconscious because, you know, I feel like I'm a fish, you know, in this in this water, and I can't help but absorb what's in the water. And uh, I don't understand how people make any. I don't understand how people even pretend that their art is pristine or somehow unaffected by the times and the culture in which they live. Are there things that people have come back to you after reading Snagglepuss or Flintstones or anything else and said, hey, this thing you did is great, and you for, your first thought is, I guess I did do that. I didn't mean to, but thanks. Yeah, all the time, and it's like the greatest feeling in the world to look back on something <laughs> and think, oh my god, I did that? Um, you know, it's, it's Yale Doctor has a great quote that like writing a novel is like... Uh, driving home on a foggy night, all you have is a pair of headlights. You can only see 10 feet ahead of you, but somehow that is sufficient to get you home. And that's kind of the way I feel about my comics. Like I, I'm working with a poor pair of headlights and on a foggy night, but somehow when you look back on the journey that you've gone, you know, it's amazing that you were able to get as far as you did with that limited sort of insight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, don't write, but I do stage work, direction, and stuff like that. And it's largely the same thing. Like six weeks of banging your head against the same performance or same production. And eventually, you look up and oh, hey, this thing has a sh- or it has a shape. When when did that happen? Yeah, right. It's like uh, uh, ants building a you know a a new hive or something. It's like all the ant really knows is I got to pick up this rock or this plot of dirt and move it over there. But then when the ant looks back over at what all the ants are doing together, it's like wow, we built a we built this complex maze-like structure just by repeating these tasks over and over. So I want to get a little bit, at least, into what happens in Snagglepuss. Yep. Uh, because there are a couple... <clears throat> excuse me. There are a couple of moments, especially later on in the book, that are pretty shocking. Uh, and obviously, if you haven't read this, maybe now is the time to skip forward a little bit. But among those moments is a Huckleberry Hound's suicide. Was there any pushback from the powers that be who have to have to greenlight these kinds of things against that? Was there a fight around that? Was that something that you had to justify in the room? Uh, or did they take a look at that on the page and, and get it? Well, that, that, I knew that that was potentially going to be a, a deal breaker. So I cleared that with them at the very beginning of the process before I'd even written a page of Snagglepuss because I knew that was going to be the story. And ironically, 
what they came back with was, uh, okay, Huckleberry Hound can commit suicide, but he can't do it on the page. So I was expecting a much, a much stronger opposition than what I got. And then they came back from that with, and can you, can you work more characters into the story? <laughs> Which I thought, wow, that is, <laughs> that is not the response I was expecting. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be, I think in some ways it's more powerful that it's not on the page. So I agree. I, yeah. I, I was never going to put on the page to begin with. Good. I good, didn't want, yeah. I don't want to be garish. I want, you know, the, it's the wrong set of emotions. It's like, exactly. I don't want people to be horrified or, you know, grossed out. I want them to realize the solemnity of, of how these sorts of, of how living in the closet is itself a form of violence about how there are consequences for forcing people to live in a state of perpetual self-loathing. And you can't pretend that it's, you know, innocent, or it's just in the name of propriety. Like this is a direct act of violence against those people. Well, and it's it, it, there was a I know a very strong reaction from me and as well as uh, other people I talked to about um, Quick Draw McGraw, and when he kind yeah. of snaps and you know reacts that way, and I, I think it's uh, at least in my opinion, after some time and after thinking about it, it shows kind of the same thing. It's that it's that burst or, or emotional reaction to having to live that way his was just obviously in a very different manner yeah exactly and you know we all like to imagine we would be heroes so we would, we're all sort of the hero of our own story but the truth of the matter is when you put people in these 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 positions where they're forced to make horrifying decisions regarding you know having to betray the people they love or face their own extinction people are going to make hard decisions in both directions Right. They call them hard, yeah. hard decisions for a reason because they're they're not no brainers and and they, people are not always going to do make the decision that you would like to think that you would make. And in fact, you don't know what decision you make until you're actually in that situation. And you know, I don't consider Quick Draw McGraw to be a villain in the story at all. I just consider him somebody who made a tragic choice based upon the limited opportunities he had at the time. And I think that in an in issue, I guess it was six is the last one that it, that really comes through, at least in my opinion. Oh yeah. He, he really wanted, you know, to do, to do what's right by everyone. It's just, you know, he, he suffers from, you know, self interest guided cowardice as do we all. And in a way he and Huckleberry Hound are, are forced to make two responses to the same choice. Right. And, uh, and I think and I, you see them both make, both make, and it's a choice that eventually Snagglepuss has to make. Well, I think that Huckleberry Hound's choice really underscores how difficult Quick Draw McGraw's choice is too, because that's really yeah. the other side of the coin of Quick Draw's choice. Right. Uh, and the other thing, the other thing, just I guess this is maybe more compliment than question, but you get to that page with Huckleberry Hound when you find out about Huckleberry Hound, and I don't think I expected it to actually go there. Like, I don't think you... It's justified, and it absolutely makes sense, but I also think there's this voice in your head saying, no, no, somehow, somehow it will get better. It, it's yeah. that hopeful which, optimism, I think, yeah. Which is, I think, maybe the thing that makes it as tragic as it is, because you see people around him saying, no, buck up, it'll get better. Yeah, and... I kind of deal with that a little bit at issue six, but this sort of hopeful optimism mm -hmm. or this sort of expectation that every story is going to have a happy ending is really poisonous. It really allows us to accept 
the the darkness that's falling around us without really fighting it too hard because we just assume that we'll that we'll be saved in the end that something miraculous will happen and everything will be right whereas it's not always true there are very real consequences for for not turning back the darkness as it ascends no but what i love is that although you know the characters come to that realization that yeah there's not always a happy ending for a character right that yeah sometimes even though there's not a happy ending for them that unhappy ending then promotes or inspires or leads to betterment yeah kind of the the ending note of the series is that you can't count on happy endings but what you count count on is people's resilience and their willingness to take the blows that life has left them and somehow make a make something good out of it i agree uh, and fantastic i i absolutely i will very definitely recommend this series to anybody that that asked me right yeah it, it was really uh took a lot out of me both in terms of time and just sort of emotional exhaustion to write this series it was probably the, the hardest thing i've had to write hitherto and you know i've written two books about the bible and i, I can say that. <laughs> you have another book coming up actually that we kind of skipped over um Lex Luthor, Porky Pig. While we're on, while we're on, uh, I guess that's Looney Tunes, not Hanna Barbera. But uh, while we're on, sort of that train of thought. Yeah, I think uh, I've I've just made a career out of taking projects that sound like a terrible idea. Well, I, I was going <laughs> to ask more. Those in, are always some of my favorites. Yeah, I was going to ask more in general. I mean, you've done you've done quite a few. Like you've done the like the Booster yeah. Gold Stones, and you've done. Uh, uh, what was uh, uh the banana split suicide squad, right? No, I I didn't do that. Was that, that was not, uh, Tony uh, Oh, I'm sorry. That was the yeah. uh, snagglepuss that was in the back of that one. That's where yeah, that's where exactly you kind of first right. introduced that, right? Um but uh oh, I know what I was thinking. I was thinking uh Young Monsters in Love, kind of these uh anthology yeah. off the wall kind of ideas. Right? Yeah, they've you've yet to uh, come upon an idea so bad that I won't do it. <laughs> but in a way it's liberating because it's like when you have a crossover that shouldn't work or, or care, a franchise that's dead, you've got a lot more freedom. Whereas, if, you know, and I've written, say this as somebody who's written a couple of Superman stories, which I'm really proud of, but when you're writing Superman, it's a lot more controlled of an environment. There's a lot more things you can and cannot do. Whereas when you're writing some silly crossover, it's kind of the Wild West. Anything goes. Plus, I've got to imagine there's a real satisfaction to taking a concept that absolutely should not work and then making it work. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that the irony is that the more they look away and expect you to fail, the more likely it is you're actually make something really good out of it because the expectations are so low and you have so much more creative freedom and you, because the expectation is for you to fail or for it to not be good you kind of are free to swing for the fences because everyone's expecting you to strike out anyway. Well, I will be completely honest with you as a perfect example of that. When I picked up the first issue of Flintstones, I was not expecting it to be anything like what it was. And it turned out to be one of my favorite things that came out that year. Thanks. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where every, every positive review I read of the Flintstones started kind of a bite with like sort of apologizing for it. Like, <laughs> like uh well, stay with me or you're not gonna believe this but 
you know. Right. Well, it is uh, it, uh, because it's not a, you know, it's not just a, a floof kind of throwaway story. Like every one of those is a super, super clear example. And like, I think a fantastic example of, of satire, of, you know, social commentary and satire. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's, it's sort of my, uh, my manifesto about civilization and how it works and how it fails. Uh, which, you know, if you're going to um, look for a, for a uh, uh, prism to, to put a, a criticism of, of civilization through it, you can hardly ask for a better one than the Flintstones. You know, it's because bedrock is like the world's first civilization. So everything we get, got wrong since, we can just sort of blame on them. And people, can, <laughs> and people can read it without being too defensive. It's like, yeah, bedrock kind of sucks. Well, I sure wish I, I'm sure glad I don't live there, you know. And yet you get the people that question a lot of times it's pebbles or sometimes it's, you know, one of the other characters that say, why are we doing it like this? You know, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a way it's an advantage because they're, you know, it's a lot more likely, a lot more, well, a lot more likely to ask these sorts of questions because it's also new to them. Right. You know, it's like they didn't have marriage, you know, 30 years before this. So the idea that you would ask, well, what is this institution? So I got, we, I will be with this woman for the rest of my life. How does this work? It's a lot more natural for people to ask those sorts of questions when everything is so brand new. Whereas we just kind of accept these questions as the, uh, the, the, the water in which we swim. Yeah. It takes away by virtue of setting, it takes away. Well, that's how we've always done it. Yeah. Which is, I think maybe the most toxic phrase in, this or any language. Well, it just yeah, dismisses it, so much, yeah. Right, it kind of um, completely ignores the idea that people or society can change at all. That, like, the if the argument that this is the way it was done is an argument that this is the way it should be done, then you completely um, discount any possibility for conditions to change, requiring new answers to these challenges, which to me is horrifyingly dangerous in the 21st century when, you know, you, people wear completely different fashions and listen, you know, doing completely different things. We have whole new technologies that didn't exist five years ago. You know, five years from now, we might have self-driving cars. And if you don't think that this is going to require some sort of institutional adjustment on our part or that global warming isn't going to require us to change the way we've always done things, then, you know, that, that seems to be a, a suicidal mindset. And it also, I think, misses the, 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 the option that just because we say that's how it always has been done doesn't even mean that's true. Yeah, right. It's With, how we remember it being done. Yeah, I think most prejudice is really kind of based on a, a very poor understanding of history. <laughs> uh, I mean, like sort of white nationalism and you know, white supremacy is kind of based entirely on, like, say, like the last 200 years of history, ignoring you know, everything that happened before and you know ignoring that for the 99 percent of human history uh white people lived you know in, in more or less the same sort of technological development or even below like that of like china or other global civilizations or you know for that matter that for 99 90 percent of human history we were just small tribes of hunter gatherers there were no such things as nations or empires or races we were just these small communal living tribes of hunter gatherers for like you know 95% of our existence. Mm -hmm. So just uh more in general, so we we kind of asked you at the beginning about how 
you um you know kind of how you got into liking this kind of these kinds of things how did you get involved professionally as far as uh as comic books go well i started uh with a comic uh called prez which is about the first teenager to become elected president via twitter i guess if she were around today she would be the second president elected uh, <laughs> but that was my first comic uh uh, and I got that largely because of um, the, the the Bible books I did. And DC wanted to do like a satirical comic, you know, to, to sort of coincide with the upcoming 2016 election. So um, I got the call out of the blue uh, from Marie Javins, uh, who's been my pretty much my editor ever since at DC, asking if I would be willing to uh, send them a pitch for a, a comic based on a teenager and becomes president, which was a reboot of their 1973 series that was um, created by Joe Simon. So I said, sure. And I sent it in. They liked the pitch. And that ran for six issues. And based on that, they they liked that well enough that they offered to be the Flintstones. I've got to ask while we're on the subject of Prez, uh, is there, and maybe this is just not something you can speak to uh, at the moment on a on a podcast, but is there any chance of more of that in the future? Cause I know I, I mean, I devoured that as it came out. I would kill for more of it. Oh, uh, thanks. Uh, I would, I would love to do more press. Unfortunately, I, I don't see how it's going to work with DC, but, um, I, I do have a series, uh, coming out with Ahoy, which hasn't been announced yet, but I'm taking a lot of the concepts I had planned for the second six issues of press and I'm using it in, in this series that I'm writing with them which is about sort of a, a, also about like a dystopian near future America. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that one. If, if you haven't read press, it is just a black, like it is, it's got some of those same kind of Flintstone vibes. And I'm looking at Brian as I say mm-hmm. this, cause I've been needling him on this one. Uh, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun too. You should, Brian, check it out, and anyone listening at home. Well, if, Brian. if all of these creators and artists and all these people would quit putting out so much great <laughs> stuff that's current today, that I could have a little bit of time to go read some older stuff, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, okay. isn't it? I mean, there's just so much good stuff right now. So it's like good. a golden age. It really, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't get the people who who just. I mean, I get why they're doing it. It's they got nothing to do with the words coming out of their mouths. But I don't get the people who can, with a straight face, get on social media or shout that there's, you know, everything's being ruined, that nothing is good, that comics are so terrible now. Because I can't imagine there ever having been a time when this much stuff has come out and been as good as it is. But both volume and quality are really astounding if you think about it yeah i think those complaints come from a limited comics audience who basically enjoys comics the same way they enjoy you know professional wrestling where it's it's just the same guys you've seen fight a hundred times before fighting um a villain they haven't fought in a while or teaming tag teaming with a hero they haven't tag teamed with for a while mm-hmm. they don't really want you know, something new and interesting. They want what they're familiar with, you know, you know, and it's not to invalidate the way they enjoy comics. That's totally legitimate. But, um, but, you know, just, just make allowances for the fact that other people are going to enjoy comics differently and they want new and interesting stories. And the fact that they get them doesn't nothing to take away from what you've got. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, this much coming out, there's there's something for everyone. Yeah, there's exactly. Be. There's there's we're we're putting something new into the universe. We're not taking things away. Right. And so it, it, I think if they were to realize that, or you know, but I think there's a dark, very minor faction of comic book fans where it's not about you know them being able to enjoy something. It's literally about them wanting to gatekeep the, the comics uh, community as a club for just them and people like them. And even though they they can still, you know, read read all the Avengers comics they want, it it's 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 not about that to them. It's about, you know, they 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 want this to be their thing and only their thing. They're like you know, um, snooty uh, uh, goth kids getting upset that the Cure goes mainstream or something. <laughs> well, it's it's people who are averse to change and growth and. Right. Organic, yeah. Which you know, I can understand not wanting the new stuff and just wanting the same old thing you had before. That's that's totally fine. Then sure. by all means enjoy it. I don't understand why they're invested in keeping other people from enjoying what they want. What you know, what they want that's different than what they have. Right. Yeah. I have this this theory on on that that back before it was like socially acceptable or even maybe cool to be at least a little nerdy. Maybe that's where some of these people hit out and they just don't want to share that now. But even then I just, I can't wrap my head around, around that attitude that this thing was mine and can only be mine. And there's no room for anyone else in it to change. That's because you're not one of those people, Alex. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I have a hard time relating that, too, because I've always been kind of like excited when I found that I, someone else is in something that I'm into. Like, to me, that's like great. And and the idea that like, oh, well, now it's ruined because everyone's into it. That doesn't resonate with me at all. No, same here. I mean, I'm from a small town. If anyone had heard about Thing X I was super into, like, that was my month made. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait! There was a Thing uh, X comic. What? No, I'm just. <laughs> well, yeah, you you, you know what I, I mean, right? Uh, although there was probably a thi- the thing on Earth X. So. Probably was. All right. Well, we started to talk about about Lex Luthor, Porky Pig, and then that became oh, right. Of, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Then my, yeah, yeah. Then one of my tirade. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, that's all good. It's all on the same list. But I love the yeah the the idea behind the Lex Luthor, Porky Pig thing is that um, Porky Pig has a um, a uh, cryptocurrency, uh, Porky Bucks, <laughs> but it but it fails, and he's facing destitution, and you know he's he's real he's afraid he's going to work at a restaurant the rest of his life. But then Lex Luthor hires him on to run the social media wing of LexCorp, uh, and so it's Porky's put in this bad situation, kind of like I imagine like maybe um, situation maybe Sarah Huckabee Sanders is in where. This guy is like a savior. He's a god to Porky Pig, but at the same time, he realizes that that Lex Luthor's doing some really unsavory stuff at LexCorp, and he's having to sort of like turn a blind eye to it all, uh, just because you know his hero worship for Lex Luthor. Do you have? So I I know we've kind of already talked about you know the the two things that you have. do. You have any ideas relating that you really you know haven't sold yet or that are you know that you that you're going to be pitching soon I, I know you don't want to talk about them but like in, anything in the in the works yeah uh, totally um 
I uh, I had pitched a Swamp Thing series, which I'd really love to write. I I don't know if if that's ever going to come to fruition though. And um, I can't announce it yet, but I'm working on on something with uh, Brian Michael Bendis and sort of his you know, like for his like his uh, Wonderline, which uh, hopefully will be official soon. But I I'm really excited to be doing that as well. Awesome, wonderful. So we've talked about. I think we've pretty much covered everything. Is there anything I'm missing? I, I, I'm, that's what I keep looking back over my list of, yeah. of oh, uh, talking let, points. Let me just do a shout out for my uh, my Judge Dredd series. I'm doing a, a Judge oh, Dredd right. series with IDW. And issue number one just came out at the end of May. Uh, and, and it's about Judge Dredd stumbling upon this mutant invasion in this rundown city block called uh, Patrick Swayze block. Oop. And... It's, about, <laughs> it's kind of about how Mega City One just sort of ignored this poverty-stricken city block to the point where it became so decayed that the the, the um, mutants could get in through because it's like right on the the wall of Mega City One, so the mutants use it as a as a invasion point for Mega City One. Uh, but I'm really happy with the way it's turning out. Max Dunbar is doing the artwork on it, and um, if you're if you're out there and you uh, you're a Judge Dread fan. Um, it's called Judge Dread Under Siege, and I, and it'd be nice if you picked up a copy. All right, cool. I will. I will definitely. I've Judge Dread is one of those giant blocks of comics history that I've yet to insert myself into. So maybe, I mean, this will be. I'll definitely pick it up. This may be the thing that finally gets me to go deep down that rabbit hole. Yeah, the um, the what I really like about Judge Dread is the world building. Because uh, you read about Mega City One, and it's like, oh my God, this is this could very well be what you know we turn. This could very well be what what the world is in like a hundred years, because you know you have these super urban areas that are walled off from you know the cursed Earth, which is basically the the rural countryside, uh, which has turned to dust and desert because of radiation. But it's like when you think about like a the desertification is happening through global warming and also just sort of the political divide between urban voters and, and rural voters and urban interests and rural interests. It's like, this could very well be like what our country looks like a hundred years from now. So to me, I just, I think it's just a fascinating sort of world building that they do. I've always wanted to write a story set in mega city one. Well, I, I don't think, I don't think it's an accident that for, you know, probably 35, 40 years now, all of the dystopian future novels and comics and everything else, you, you see these isolated civiliz you know, these kind of shrinking down to isolated city states or, or communities. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I think the city state is a much more relevant sort of political organization for, for us now than the nation state, because you think about like uh, nation states are really kind of formed uh, after the advent of agriculture and, and, you know, um, aristocracy so it's really about like creating this network of aristocrats to, to control their estates a from foreign invasion and b from like peasant uprisings but it, it's really not that relevant as a as a as a political organization organizing tool anymore because most of the wealth is created um in cities and, and by uh you know it's it's intellectual property and it's uh human resources it's not most of our, the wealth is not drawn up from the land in the form of agriculture and natural resources. A very small percentage of the, the wealth that we rely upon comes that way. So we got these armies and navies 
better to defend something that that really isn't that 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 much of a driving factor in our society anymore. So I, in a way, I think it you know, almost would be better if we went back to like a sort of a, a network of city states. We probably don't want corporations to become the state. That's <laughs> no. probably not the way we want to go. No, but I, but yeah, <laughs> the problem with this, the nation state is that we have to. You, the nation state also requires you to build up these giant, expensive militaries, yep. these huge standing armies to defend them. And, and really, what's I mean, it's it's like it makes no sense for China to invade the United States to say take Facebook. <laughs> you know, Facebook will just <laughs> set up in some other city. Right, uh, and that's what you know. Most of our wealth is now. It's these corporations. It's their human resources, intellectual property, and their financial wealth. It's not the fact that they own the Facebook mines of Silicon Valley. And so, there's no point in really uh, invading a country to take that land from them. So, why do we still have these these nation states set up basically for the sole purpose of defending large pieces of land? Anyway, that's a good question. That's my, <laughs> that's, that's my thought. Uh, but uh, yeah. It's, um, but but I, I really think that that Mega City One and the the world building and Judge Dredd is one of the best sort of dystopias out there. So it was really appealing for me to write it, and it's just a four four issue long uh, mini series. But I, I was really glad to be able to write it. Great. Yeah, that sounds that sounds super. Yeah, thank interesting. you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I didn't know about that already, other than just. I'm a complete neophyte when it comes to Judge Dredd. Like, there are about three different things. Judge Dredd, Hellboy, Legion of Superheroes, Hellboy I'm a little okay. better on, but like, Judge Dredd, Legion of Superheroes, and like, G.I. Joe and sort of the Hasbro stuff uh, that, that IDW also has. I just, I've never taken the time to dig into all of it because there's so much well I, and to be fair we've talked about this before there's there is so much out there you you really you can't do everything yeah. you can't read everything it's like this tv now excuse, it's like so don't stop me it's like no, it's a lot easier to follow television when there was like three networks you know, maybe like <laughs> yes. 30, 30 cable channels now there's like netflix and hulu and you know amazon and and and, and then cable tv it's just too much it's like you it's it's like I'm sure I'm missing out on some things that would change my life just because of the sheer quantity of it all. You're exactly right. And and that that like year that every major corporate website wanted to have their own toe into TV. Like remember when Yahoo bought the rights to Community and produced a season of it? Yeah. Like it's it's nuts. I think that pretty much that covers everything I had in my notes. Brian, did you have anything else? Um no, I guess the only other I, I've got a question that I kind of wrap up with generally, and that is uh, if there was uh, any character or IP or environment, you know, any comics, any time in history of comics, whatever that you uh, that you could write, what 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 would you choose to write us? I think probably the most fun thing possible to write would be a, a flaming carrot comic book. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, and I will ask Jin's usual closer question. What is your favorite sound effect to write? Uh, Bawoom. Bawoom. Excellent like a, choice. Uh, like an implosion sound, like Bawoom. Yeah, with like those big block letters in the background. Yeah. That's very, there's something very yeah. gratifying about that sound. All right. I like it. 
Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk with us. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to what you've got coming up. If you have, if you're listening and haven't checked out Flintstones or Prez or Snagglepuss or like me, Judge Dredd, do it. Yep, I know the trades for Flintstoners are out, uh, so you can pick those up. Uh, I'm guessing. I think it's about three months the Snagglepuss trade comes out. Two months, three months. So, yeah, it comes out at the end of yeah, ju- like, end of July. There you go. There you go. Cool. Yeah. So look forward to that. Yeah. And uh, anything, anything else you want to plug that we haven't already talked about? Nope. I think I think I've plugged it all. I've, uh... Excellent. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, and we will. Uh, you know, if you ever right. want to come back on and talk more, we'd be happy to have Indeed. you. Thank yeah, you, Mark. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. And now we're back. Wasn't that fun? It was was a blast. Thanks again, Mark Russell, for joining us. Indeed. And if you haven't read Flintstones or Snagglepuss or Prez, Brian, go check it out. Uh Uh-huh. And I will certainly go check out the Judge Dredd book. Yes. And I will definitely be grabbing Snifter of Terror and (laughs) Second Coming. Second Coming just sounds so funny. Yeah. Basically anything, anything Mark Russell writes, I'm gonna grab Lex Luthor, Porky Pig. Even if I did start choking to death and did near the entire entire explanation there. Every and that's that was the thing about the Flintstones. Everything he writes, like it is so accurate in its depiction. Like it's so sharp. Yes. Yes. And I think that's gonna do it for this week. It was Jin's turn for Longbox, so we may double Longbox next week. Maybe we'll We'll figure that that out. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I am and will always be Alex. That makes me Brian. And we're done. (laughs) Bye.